0: Chapter Sixteen, Part A of *Aaron's Rod* by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen, Florence, Part A. The very afternoon after Aaron's arrival in Florence, the sky became dark, the wind cold, and rain began steadily to fall. He sat in his big bleak room above the river and watched the pale green water fused with yellow, the many threaded streams fused into one, as swiftly the surface flood came down from the hills. Across the dark green hills looked darker in the wet, the umbrella pines held up in vain above the villas. But away below, on the Lungarno, traffic rattled as ever aaron went down at five o'clock to tea and found himself alone next a group of women mostly swedes or danish or dutch drinking a peculiar brown herb brew which tasted like nothing else on earth and eating two thick bits of darkish bread smeared with a brown smear which hoped it was jam but hoped in vain unhappily he sat in the gilt and red massively ornate room while the foreign women eyed him oh bitter to be a male under such circumstances HE ESCAPED AS SOON AS POSSIBLE, BACK TO HIS FAR-OFF REGIONS, LONELY AND CHEERLESS, WAY ABOVE. BUT HE RATHER LIKED THE FAR-OFF REMOTENESS IN THE BIG OLD FLORENTINE HOUSE. HE DID NOT MIND THE PECULIAR, DARK, uncozy DREARINESS. IT WAS NOT REALLY DREARY, ONLY INDIFFERENT. INDIFFERENT TO COMFORT, INDIFFERENT TO ALL HOMELINESS AND COSINESS. THE OVER-BIG FURNITURE TRYING TO BE IMPRESSIVE, BUT NEVER TO BE PRETTY OR BRIGHT OR CHEERFUL. THERE IT STOOD, UGLY AND APART and there let it stand neither did he mind the lack of fire the cold somberness of his big bedroom at home in england the bright grate and the ruddy fire the thick hearth rug, and the man's armchair these had been inevitable and now he was glad to get away from it all he was glad not to have a cosy hearth and his own armchair he was glad to feel the cold and to breathe the unwarmed air he preferred the italian way of no fires no heating if the day was cold, he was willing to be cold too. If it was dark, he was willing to be dark. The cozy brightness of a real home, it had stifled him till he felt his lungs would burst. The horrors of real domesticity. No, the Italian brutal way was better. So he put his overcoat over his knee and studied some music he had bought in Milan. Some pergolesi and the scarlatti he liked and some corelli he preferred frail sensitive abstract music with not much feeling in it but a certain limpidity and purity night fell as he sat reading the scores he would have liked to try certain pieces on his flute but his flute was too sensitive it winced from the new strange surroundings and would not blossom dinner sounded at last at eight o'clock or something after he had to learn to expect the meals always forty minutes late down he went down the long dark lonely corridors and staircases the dining-room was right downstairs but he had a little table to himself near the door the elderly women were at some little distance the only other men were Agostmo, the unshapely waiter and an italian duke with wife and child and nurse the family sitting all together at a table half-way down the room and utterly preoccupied with a little yellow dog However, the food was good enough and sufficient, and the waiter and the maid servant cheerful and bustling. Everything felt happy-go-lucky and informal. There was no particular atmosphere. Nobody put on any airs, because nobody in the Nardini took any notice if they did. The little ducal dog yapped, the ducal son shouted, the waiter dropped half a dozen spoons, the old women knitted during the waits, and all went off so badly that it was quite pleasant. Yes, Aaron preferred it to Bertolini's, which was trying to be efficient and correct, though not making any strenuous effort. Still, Bertolini's was much more up to the scratch. There was the tension of proper standards, whereas here at Nardini's nothing mattered very much. It was November. When he got up to his far-off room again, Aaron felt almost as if he were in a castle with the drawbridge drawn up through the open window came the sound of the swelling arno as it rushed and rustled along its gravel shoals lights spangled the opposite side traffic sounded deep below the room was not really cold for the summer sun so soaks into these thick old buildings that it takes a month or two of winter to soak it out the rain still fell in the morning it was still november and the dawn came slowly and through the open window was the sound of the rivers rushing but the traffic started before dawn with a bang and a rattle of carts and a bang and jingle of tramcars over the not-distant bridge. Oh, noisy Florence! At half-past seven, Aaron rang for his coffee and got it at a few minutes past eight. The signorina had told him to take his coffee in bed. Rain was still falling, but towards nine o'clock it lifted and he decided to go out. A wet, wet world. Carriages going by with huge, wet, shiny umbrellas, black and with many points, erected to cover the driver and the tail of the horse and the box seat. The hood of the carriage covered the fare. Clatter, clatter through the rain. Peasants with long wagons and slow oxen, and pale green huge umbrellas erected for the driver to walk beneath. Men tripping along in cloaks, shawls, umbrellas, anything, quite unconcerned. A man loading gravel in the riverbed, in spite of the wet, and innumerable bells ringing. But innumerable bells. The great soft trembling of the cathedral bell felt in all the air. Anyhow, it was a new world. Aaron went along close to the tall, thick houses following his nose, and suddenly he caught sight of the long, slim neck of the Palazzo Vecchio, up above, in the air and in another minute he was passing between massive buildings out into the piazza della signoria there he stood still and looked round him in real surprise and real joy the flat empty square with its stone paving was all wet the great buildings rose dark the dark sheer front of the palazzo vecchio went up like a cliff to the battlements and the slim tower soared dark and hawk-like crested high above and at the foot of the cliff stood the great naked David, white and stripped in the wet, white against the dark, warm dark cliff of the building, and near the heavy naked men of Bandinelli. The first thing he had seen as he turned into the square was the back of one of these Bandinelli statues, a great naked man of marble, with a heavy back and strong naked flanks over which the water was trickling, and then to come immediately upon the David so much whiter, glistening, skin-white, in the wet, standing a little forward, and shrinking. He may be ugly, too naturalistic, too big, and anything else you like, but the David in the Piazza della Signoria, there, under the dark, great palace, in the position Michelangelo chose for him, there, standing forward, stripped and exposed, and eternally half-shrinking, half-wishing to expose himself, he is the genius of Florence." the adolescent the white self-conscious physical adolescent enormous in keeping with the stark grim enormous palace which is dark and bare as he is white and bare and behind the big lumpy bandinelli men are in keeping too they may be ugly but they are there in their place and they have their own lumpy reality and this morning in the rain standing unbroken with the water trickling down their flanks and along the inner side of their great thighs they were real enough, representing the undaunted physical nature of the heavier Florentines. Aaron looked and looked at the three great naked men, David so much white and standing forward self-conscious, then at the great splendid front of the Palazzo Vecchio, and at the fountain splashing water upon its wet, wet figures, and the distant equestrian statue, and the stone-flagged space of the grim square and he felt that here he was in one of the world's living centres, here in the Piazza della Signoria, the sense of having arrived, of having reached a perfect centre of the human world. This he had. And so, satisfied, he turned round to look at the bronze Perseus which rose just above him. Benevuto Cellini's dark hero looked female, with his plump hips and his waist, female and rather insignificant, graceful and rather vulgar the clownish bandanelles were somehow more to the point than all the statuary in the loggia but that is a mistake it looks too much like the yard of a monumental mason the great naked men in the rain under the dark gray november sky in the dark strong inviolable square the wonderful hawk head of the old palace the physical self-conscious adolescent Michelangelo's david shrinking and exposing himself with his white slack limbs florence passionate fearless florence had spoken herself out aaron was fascinated by the piazza della signoria he never went into the town nor returned from it to his lodging without contriving to pass through the square and he never passed through it without satisfaction here men had been at their intensest most naked pitch here at the end of the old world and the beginning of the new since then always rather puling and apologetic. Aaron felt a new self, a new life-urge, rising inside him. Florence seemed to start a new man in him. It was a town of men. On Friday morning so early he heard the traffic, early he watched the rather low two-wheeled traps of the peasants spanking recklessly over the bridge, coming into town. And then, when he went out, he found the Piazza della Signoria, packed with men, but all, all men, and all farmers, landowners, and land workers, the curious, fine-nosed Tuscan farmers, with their half-sardonic, amber-colored eyes, their curious individuality, their clothes worn so easy and reckless, their hats with the personal twist, their curious full oval cheeks, their tendency to be too fat, to have a belly and heavy limbs, their close-sitting dark hair, and above all, their sharp, almost acrid, mocking expression. The silent curl of the nose. The eternal challenge. The rock-bottom unbelief. And the subtle fearlessness. The dangerous, subtle, never-dying fearlessness and the acrid unbelief. But men. Men. A town of men, in spite of everything. The one manly quality, undying, acrid fearlessness. The eternal challenge of the unquenched human soul perhaps too acrid and challenging today when there is nothing left to challenge but men who existed without apology and without justification men who would neither justify themselves nor apologize for themselves just men the rarest thing left in our sweet christendom altogether aaron was pleased with himself for being in florence those were early days after the war when as yet very few foreigners had returned, and the place had the native somberness and intensity, so that our friend did not mind being alone. The third day, however, Francis called on him. There was a tap at the bedroom door, and the young man entered, all eyes of curiosity. Oh, there you are, he cried, flinging his hand and twisting his waist, and then laying his hand on his breast. Such a long way up to you! But, Miles, well, how are you? Are you quite all right here you are I'm so glad we've been so rushed seeing people that we haven't had a minute but not a minute people 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 isn't it amazing how many there are and how many one knows and gets to know but amazing endless acquaintances oh and such quaint people here so odd so more than odd oh extraordinary Francis chuckled to himself over the extraordinariness THEN HE SEATED HIMSELF GRACEFULLY AT AARON'S TABLE. OH, MUSIC, WHAT? CORELLI, SO INTERESTING, SO VERY CLEVER, THESE PEOPLE, WEREN'T THEY? CORELLI AND THE YOUNGER SCARLATTI AND ALL THAT CROWD? HERE HE CLOSED THE SCORE AGAIN. BUT NOW, LOOK, DO YOU WANT TO KNOW ANYBODY HERE OR DON'T YOU? I'VE TOLD THEM ABOUT YOU AND OF COURSE THEY'RE DYING TO MEET YOU AND HEAR YOU PLAY, BUT I THOUGHT IT BEST NOT TO MENTION ANYTHING ABOUT, about YOUR BEING HARD UP AND ALL THAT. I said you were just here on a visit you see with this kind of people I'm sure it's much the best not to let them start off by thinking you will need them at all or that you might need them why give yourself away anyhow just meet them and take them for what they're worth and then you can see if they like to give you an engagement to play at some show or other well you can decide when the time comes whether you will accept much better that these kind of people shouldn't get it into their heads at once that they can hire your services it doesn't do they haven't enough discrimination for that much best make rather a favor of it than sort of ask them to hire you don't you agree perhaps i'm wrong aaron sat and listened and wondered at the wisdom and the genuine kindness of the young beau and more still he wondered at the profound social disillusionment this handsome collie dog was something of a social wolf half showing his fangs at the moment, but with genuine kind-heartedness for another wolf. Aaron was touched. "'Yes, I think that's the best way,' he said. "'You do. Yes, so do I. Oh, they are such queer people. Why is it, do you think, that English people abroad go so very queer, so ultra-English, incredible, and at the same time so perfectly impossible, but impossible, pathological, I assure you? and as for their sexual behavior, oh dear, don't mention it. I assure you it doesn't bear mention, and all quite flagrant, quite unabashed, under the cover of this fanatical Englishness, but I couldn't begin to tell you all the things. It's just incredible. Aaron wondered how on earth Francis had been able to discover and bear witness to so much that was incredible in a bare two days, but a little gossip and an addition of lurid imagination will carry you anywhere. "'Well, now,' said Francis, "'what are you doing today?' "'Aaron was not doing anything in particular. "'Then will you come and have dinner with us?' Francis fixed up the time and the place, a small restaurant at the other end of the town. Then he leaned out of the window. "'Fascinating place, oh, fascinating place,' he said, soliloquy. "'And you've got a superb view, almost better than ours, I think. "'Well, then, half past seven we're meeting a few other people mostly residents or people staying some time we're not inviting them just dropping in you know a little restaurant we shall see you then well then arrivederci till this evening so glad you like florence i'm simply loving it revelling and the pictures oh the party that evening consisted all of men francis and angus and a writer james argyll and little algy constable and tiny louis me and deaf walter rosen they all snapped and rattled at one another and were rather spiteful but rather amusing francis and angus had to leave early they had another appointment and james argyle got quite tipsy and said to aaron but my boy don't let yourself be led astray by the talk of such people as Algy. be aware of them my boy if you've a soul to save if you've a soul to save and he swallowed the remains of his leader Algy's nose trembled a little, and his eyes blinked. "'And if you've a soul to lose,' he said, "'I would warn you very earnestly against Argyle.' Whereupon Algy shut one eye and opened the other so wide that Aaron was almost scared. "'Quite right, my boy. Ha-ha! <laughs> Never a truer said. Ha-ha-ha!' <laughs> Argyle laughed at his Mephistophelian, tipsy laugh. "'They'll teach you to save.' "'Never was such a lot of ripe old savers. "'Save their old trouser buttons. "'Go to them if you want to learn to save. "'Oh, yes, I advise it seriously. "'You'll lose nothing, not even a reputation. "'You may lose a soul, of course, "'but that's a detail among such a horde "'of banknotes and trouser buttons. Ha! <laughs> "'What's a soul to them?' "'What is it to you is perhaps the more pertinent question,' "'said Algy, flapping his eyelids like some crazy owl.' it is you who specialize in the matter of soul and we who are in need of enlightenment end of chapter sixteen part a